Welcome to the latest episode of Inside Fertilizer Analytics, the August podcast focusing on different fertilizer markets. And today I'm really glad to have Alistair Wallace join us. Alistair is an industry veteran in fertilizers, I can safely say. Uh, At August, he's responsible for our fertilizer forecasts, um, our analytics and outlook products across all the nutrients and raw materials. Um, and, but I'd say he's got a particular interest in urea because he's been working in urea for, for some time. And today we're going to be focusing on urea, urea as, as our topic. Um, the urea market's going crazy. Uh, and so it's so much to talk about. Alistair, welcome, welcome to the podcast. And we're going to tap your brain. Are you ready? I am. Hi, Tim. <laughs> now, now we, we often talk about urea and, and prices. Um, and I think it's I think I'm safe saying that it's it's easier analytically to to quantify and estimate the, the bottom of a market, the floor price based on um, the industry supply curve, cost curve, you know, marginal costs of, of, of producers that are at the top end of the of the cost curve. But we're in a cu- in current market situation where urea is high and uh, really difficult to predict what happens next. But yeah, t- tell us what, what's been driving this, this unseasonal strength in urea prices? So, that's a very good question, Tim. Um, yeah, I'd say it's a uh, you know, multitude of factors, of course. Um, but as you mentioned, clearly, we're in a very demand-driven market phase. And you know, the clearest indication of that is to look at the you know, underlying demand-side demand fundamentals. And those, of course, are crop prices, um, which have had uh, also had an incredibly strong year. Um, you know, crop prices have gone from, if you think back, a kind of long run average between, let's say, 2015 and 2019, 2020 would have been around $3.50 a bushel for corn. Um, in June, corn hit $7.50 a bushel. So it's you know, over 100% of, of price increase really over the last um 12 to 18 months and most of that i mean those those prices really took off kind of in the back end of 2020 um and that of course triggered a um similar appreciation in in urea prices sort of from november through to the current day so you know those those crop markets have been very forceful i think for for the urea market um china of course i think be driving a lot of that uh, very active over the last 12 months buying corn um, rebuilding its uh, swine herd and you know after the swine flu lots of hogs um, feeding those uh, has really been I think driving um, driving those corn and soy prices um, and again agriculture itself you know was probably one of the sectors most untouched by the the COVID-19 pandemic. So we had very good um, demand growth, I think, in 2020, last year, um, despite COVID-19. And that's continuing this year. And again, sort of turbocharged by this run up in in crop prices. So, you you know, I think you have a lot of that driving, um, driving prices for our commodities you know, across the fertilizer complex. Urea has also had some particular supply side events that have removed 
um, supplied a time when it was most definitely required. We had the, the big storms and you know in in the US back in February, you know, snowing in, in, in Texas, snow drifts in Texas. And um, the US, I think, to those winter storms probably lost around 100 to 200,000 tons of, um, of urea production. We've also had a spate, or I should say a higher rate of maintenance this year. And a lot of turnarounds were put off during COVID and they've got to the point where they've become so essential that producers are taking plants down. Obviously now, you know, when prices are almost $500 at FOB markets would not be an ideal time to take down your plant, but of course people are having to, having to do so. So I think we'll probably, we have seen a lot more maintenance. Um, we've seen this, you know, increased rate of maintenance in, in, in India as well. Um, it looks to me like they've lost some production there in the first half of the year, more so than they usually would between the, uh, the carrot and rabi seasons. Um, and I think finally, you know, another consideration we have to take into account is that we've, we've seen very little new urea over the last 18 months. We had Kima, I think, in, in Egypt, brought its plant online last year. Um, aside from that, we didn't really see any meaningful production in 2020 from new urea operations. Um, and again, that story it has carried on into 2021. We haven't actually seen a huge amount of new urea, um, despite having a very full pipeline of projects. The Dangote plant has just come online, Ramagundam has just come online. So end of June, beginning of July, we've got, I think, our first, you know, meaningful production from uh, from new facilities so in Dharama in Nigeria, as well as Dangote, of course, they've been running as well. Um, but again, you know, that's sort of June, July. Um, so first half of the year, we had that surge in demand and we didn't have a, a corresponding increase in, in supply. So, you know, 18 months of no new, new additions. Um, this demand side fundamentals, maintenance issues because of COVID. I think that those are the big drivers. Energy prices as well. I mean, oil is up, um, not as heavily as urea, of course. Uh, gas markets are very strong right now. Europe and Northeast Asia, um, you know, the highest gas prices I've seen in most Northwest European hubs for, for some years now. Um, and finally, I think the final piece in the puzzle would be China. Uh, China has become or is starting to become uh, quite protectionist over its urea exports. Um, they've again, you know, they've struggled to produce this year, I would say. We're estimating that um, 2021 production from China will be down on 2020 production levels. Um, demand there is likely as strong as it, you know, as it is elsewhere. Um, Industrial demand is doing very well in, you know, in the recovery from COVID. Um, so there's a lot of strain on, on their urea supply at the moment. And the government is, I think, seeking to try to curb uh, Chinese involvement in the, the seaborne market. Um, now, we haven't actually had anything concrete from the government. There have been rumours swirling around for some time now that um, the Chinese will be introducing some form of export tariff, but that hasn't come to pass yet. 
Um, we're not expecting it to. We don't think they'll formalise it in such a way. Um, they only removed the export tariffs that they had in place for, for many years um, in 2017. So it seems unlikely to me that they want to take such a regressive step and, and reintroduce them. What seems to be happening is the Communist Party is putting a, how is it put to me, a, a, a moral, you know, taking a moral, putting making it a moral issue that they, uh, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be in China's interest for urea producers to be exporting. Um, it, it seems likely that will carry the most weight with the state-owned urea producers. Of course, uh, there are many state-owned urea producers in China. Um, so, you know, while we're going through the summer. Um, while there's still some some agricultural demand in China, I should expect that we'll see less involvement from Chinese exporters in the seaborne market, less exports uh, to India under tender. Um, likely to that, that you know that informal um, squeeze on exports is likely to disappear once we start getting seriously out of season there and we start getting into the winter. Okay, Alistair, so there, there's a confluence of factors you've described, ranging from demand drivers to a link to crop prices through to supply issues, projects, not, not so many projects coming online, um, oil and natural gas prices. So all these things seem to be um, occurring together, which is which has driven up prices. I'd like to just delve into slightly more detail to on the demand side. Um, so, you know, crop prices being high is, is going to be a big push towards farmer farmers having more um, in, interest in, in applying nitrogen and urea. Um, and, I, and, and, and that means strong demand in, I guess, North America, Brazil, uh, you know, uh, Asia, Southeast Asia, Australia, um, everywhere, basically, India and, and China. Um, but uh, particularly in China, because China is so important on trade. What do you think will happen um, in the rest for the rest of this year in terms of Indian imports and the tenders? Now, do, do the Indians, does, does the Indian government and the Indian market account for prices in, in terms of their buying plans? Or do you think they'll still be in the market for, you know, for a, a record amounts of tonnage this the second half of this calendar year? India hasn't been as active as I was expecting them to be in the first half of the year. Uh, we've assessed them as picking up around 2.7 million tonnes um, under tender so far. Now, our estimate for demand in India this year um, is down slightly from last year. So I think you know we've reduced our demand forecast by around a million tonnes. Um, now, obviously, India can produce around 25 million tonnes itself, and it needs to cover uh, its balance. Um, last year, that was 10 million tonnes for a total of 35. Uh, it needs to cover its balance in the uh, seaborne market. Um, so this year, we've reduced, as I mentioned, we've reduced demand by around a million tonnes. Um, we've also lost production. As I discussed in that intro, India is Indian production is down slightly. Um, so I, mean, I, I think they need to pick up around nine million tons in the um, in the import market this year. That's assuming that Ramagundam is able to stay sustainably operational for the rest of the year. This is something we, I guess, a general trend in the background. Um, there's often been plants 
struggling to maintain or recently struggling to maintain operations um, once they've commissioned. So if Ram Van Dam can have a good run in the second half of the year, um, then I think around 8.99 million tonnes will be needed. They've only purchased 2.7 in the first half, so that leaves uh, a lot of urea really, so over 6 million tonnes they'll need to purchase um, in the second half of the year. So it's close to, you know, assuming they'll take a million or just under per tender, you're looking at at least six tenders um, or maybe a couple of big ones. Um, but yeah, so I, I would expect to see a lot of tenders throughout the year. Now, those are likely to, if things stay tight, those are likely to crystallise, you know, small increases in prices we go through. Um, it'll be more interesting to see what happens if, if market conditions loosen in the in the second half. Um, now we've got some degree of new production operating. Um, it'll be interesting to see if those Indian tenders then, you know, lock in falling prices. So so the basis uh, for those prices uh, and that forecast that I said would be that uh, we're expecting a fairly strong demand season in India with with good rainfall and the good, good weather and the kind of um, uh, fundamentals that push for a, a good season. India's had you know, back-to-back great monsoons um, last season and the season before. This season it looks to be slightly delayed, but we are still expecting above, slightly above average rainfall, um, less good than last year. And you know, obviously there is some degree of stock already in the system, um, so that you know, I think it'll be down on last year. Like I said, we put a number on that a million tons um but you know last year was very exceptional last year was, was a record year yeah. um, let's turn to supply and, and, and projects um you mentioned that that there are two projects just starting june july time but can you talk us through the the project pipeline looking further ahead and um the the likely projects you expect to see coming on beyond that um for the rest of this year if there are any but mainly t- uh, 2022 what do you see coming to to meet this uh, stronger demand so uh, as i mentioned we've you know had a lot of activity in nigeria we have the dangote plant and the indirama plant i've heard both of those plants are operational um since june and each of them is you know, what we would call world scale so we're talking around 1.3 1.4 million tons uh, per annum of of urea production production. Ramagundam in India, again, it's around 1.3 million tonnes, big plant um, being built in the, the, towards the east of the country. Um, and that also is commissioning of that same period, that June, July period, we expect them to be operating now, you know, sustained commercial levels. So those are the three big plants for the summer. Um, we're also looking at um, Metafrax, which is a smaller plant, a urea plant in Russia, and um, coming online some point in, in Q3. And then we have the large, again, world scale, 1.3 million tonne per year, um, Brunei fertilizers plant due online in, uh, in Brunei um, at some you know, at some point, I mean, we're forecasting it to be around November, I believe. So you know, later in the year, that, that plant should be coming into production as well. That's a lot of, you know, a lot of new capacity. And we're expecting that to start to 
you know, ease the, the tight market conditions we currently have. Looking at next year, um, further activity from India. India is undertaking a, a huge uh, expansion drive to reduce that import requirement we were talking about. They don't want to be importing 10 million tonnes per year into their subsidy scheme. Remember, India is buying urea at market prices currently over $500, and it is then selling it to farmers around $80, $85 a tonne on a subsidised basis. Um, so they'd rather put capital into closing that gap and, and stop funding that through um, through sending their, their exchequer. Um, so we have two more plants we're expecting online in India next year, uh, Gorakhpur and Barani. Again, there are sister plants of the Ramagundam one, same configuration, 1.27 million tonnes per year. Um, we're expecting Gorakhpur online in the, in the first half, um, I think at the end of Q1, and then we're expecting um, Barani online uh, by Q3. Russians are also active. So we have the Toaz plant. Uh, Toaz, Toliati Azot, that is, is building a, a plant in, um, in Samara downstream of its large existing ammonia capacity. So that's an upgrade project. Basically, they prefer the look of long-run urea margins to, to long-run ammonia margins, and they're moving slightly out of ammonia and a bit more into urea. So that's a 700,000 tonne, I believe, plant coming online. And we're expecting that to be online in, in mid-2022. Two other interesting plants that are coming online around now next year um, are in Iran. So there's the Lordigan and the VMIS plant. So these two plants have been under construction for some time. Um, their process has been heavily delayed, of course, by the introduction of sanctions by the Americans back in 2018. Um, now those plants are finally, you know, we've, we've heard they're finally approaching completion. Um, so the question will be, you know, what happens with them? Will they be switched on? Um, will they commission fully, uh, given that sanctions are preventing a lot of Western engineering expertise and probably components from getting into Iran? And then, you know, once you switch them on, you know, they're going to add 2.4 million tonnes of, of new urea capacity. What do you do with that capacity if you were Iran? Because um, at the moment, it's going to be hard to find a market for it. Uh, in the uh, in the seaborne market when you're uh, when you're heavily sanctioned already, um, so I think it'll be critical really to look at what happens with these uh, this latest round of negotiations between Iran, the US, and the EU uh, over these atomic um, atomic rules. Now, we had thought that the um, the negotiations were heading would head towards a, a detente with the US. Um, the selection of a, of a hardliner as Iran's new president may change that. So, you know, that's one thing we'll be keeping a very close eye on. If those sanctions come down and Iran will suddenly be able to add a significant amount of liquidity to, to the global urea market very quickly. Uh, that's a big uncertainty in the outlook then. Uh, but let's get to the uh, the million dollar question, which is is linked to your of course, linked to your prediction or your outlook for supply. But in, in, in broader terms, what do you, where do you see prices going? I, I know when, we, when when you're on a bull run, it's 
probably the most difficult time to ask someone about their view of future prices. You know, calling the end of a bull run. But how how do you see prices developing for the rest of this year and into next year? Are we going to see this current firmness continue? Do do you see some softening of prices? Uh, what's your view? So our our outlook for prices is stable to firm for the next few months. Um, I think we're we're really expecting to see a few some some incremental price. Uh, increase over you know, into Q3. Uh, correction, if it comes when it comes, I think we'd be looking at not before Q4. With this new capacity coming into the market, um, especially if the, the Brunei fertilizers plant is up and running before Q4, and with these two new Nigerian plants running, that should add, um, you know, add around three million tons of supply to the seaborne market on an annual basis, um, things should start to ease. There's an even greater chance, I think, once we get into 2022 and we're through the the big northern hemisphere spring season, uh, we'll likely see a a seasonal adjustment down then if it doesn't come before. Um, I'm expecting to see a a, a correction, significant correction downwards. On an annualized basis, where we were forecasting, I think, $415 for the annual price for Middle Eastern granules in 2020. And we're forecasting around $335 for next year. So that's a significant downwards adjustment when it comes. Um, But like I said, most likely after the spring season in 22, although if we do get new, all this new can um these new plants online and operating stably there is a chance for some degree of downwards movement in q4 uh great thank you the uh i know a lot of the work you do looks beyond um beyond the the the, you know the 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 next year or two Uh, you think very deeply about uh the longer term drivers of prices using long-run marginal costs and 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 other techniques to um, to come up with uh, a robust view of, of long-term prices, um, and if our listeners are interested in that in that side of your analysis, we may we may need to cover it in a separate podcast because it would be a half an hour discussion at least on its own. Um, so I would encourage uh, maybe we should do that or encourage our, our listeners to to read uh, the Eurea Analytics report. But I wanted to ask you a question, a separate question on the long term that comes up. Just my final question. It comes up, I know, so many times when I join you in client calls, which you do regularly. It's the question that's just the, the hot topic of, of the moment, the move to zero carbon economy and and urea. What's your, you know, what's your view on where, where urea fits in the long term, in the long term net zero economy as a fertilizer? Does it have a role? Do you see it continuing to play the, uh, you know, the to be the heavy lifter of, of nitrogen fertilizers? Um, what's your view on that? It's hard to see it not having a role. Um, you know, I, I can't, maybe I'm biased, but I, I struggle to see a world where um, the majority of nitrogen isn't delivered by a urea. Um, if we think about the alternatives, can everywhere use MPKs? I don't see a case for it. Can everywhere switch out of urea and into ammonium nitrate, of course, because with ammonium nitrate, you can you can use green ammonia to make your ammonium nitrate entirely, and you could have completely carbon-free fertilizer. Urea, of course, requires CO2 to 
process the ammonia into to urea um, and, and therefore we can't do without natural gas steam reforming at least you know with the technology as it currently is um, so you know if we need to keep producing urea and we're going to need to keep steam reforming gas to some extent globally um, like I said it's hard to see the world switching to ammonium nitrate there are substantial safety issues there you know you can look at all the countries that are driving future nitrogen growth Latin America China India Southeast Asia switch away from established urea production into uh, switching the entire sorry their entire nitrogen production base into nitrates closing all those steam reforming plants uh, it's yeah it's hard for me to see so you know I suspect we'll see urea maintaining you know, a significant position in global nitrogen supply uh, especially for agriculture could it be greener yes you know I think we you know we've discussed this um, there are ways you know we can green urea so that you know if we address the non-feedstock components of steam reforming and operating the, the wider urea facility, switch that to a power basis and make that power green, you can probably chop emissions from a, a urea plant. I mean, what do you think, 30% more? I got it. Yeah, so it's, it sounds like you think urea might be one of those residual uses of carbon that remains that right remains in place in the long term because of its structural importance like like we often joke about um about co2 in 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 our soft drinks and in our beer it's going to be very difficult to replace those um and it sounds like urea might be one of those long-lasting uses of co2 where in the end we have to offset that co2 in other ways uh, in order to allow for that application Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I mean, if you think about some of the urea plants that are operating now, um, and, you know, operating very well, building the 70s or 80s, you know, these these assets have long lives, you know, properly maintained and sustained. Talking about 50 years of operation plus, you know, people are putting a lot of capital into building them today. Uh, it's hard to see them all being closed in, in the 2030s. Yeah, great. I think we better we better uh, wrap up at that point. Uh, we could talk for a lot longer, and I know you're often on calls with with our subscribers for an hour and, lo and two hours sometimes. So uh, we 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 can't cover all the bases. But what I would say is, if you're interested in learning more um, about what Alistair's team produced, then please uh, download the the reports from Argus Direct or from your email. I think the relevant reports in this case would be the Urea Outlook, which is our monthly short-term outlook. Um, then there's the Urea Analytics Service, which is quarterly and annual. That looks at the medium and longer term issues and fundamentals data. And it's, I would say, the really uh, dynamic and engaged, engaging um, report covering the, the global urea business. We also have Ammonia Outlook, Ammonia Analytics, uh, Ammonium Sulfate coverage in a multi-client report. We've got green ammonia coverage. So we really do cover nitrogen fertilizers in many ways and uh, so do get in touch with your account manager to to learn more or um if you're not a, an argus customer then get into uh, get, get into the argus web media website and find 
more information there. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, Alistair, for uh, for talking us through the current crazy urea market conditions. Uh, we really appreciated your insights. We look forward to hearing an update from you in a few months' time, maybe once things have settled down, who knows. But uh, it's been really good fun to talk to you. Um, and to all our listeners, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.